In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. I hope that you're all doing well. Uh, happy first week of Lent. Um, I can't think of anything more appropriate for us to be able to speak about than uh, this very topic. Uh, even though we've been covering uh, what presumably just if, if you take a look at it from a sort of superficial standpoint is on the incarnation uh, it has to do specifically with the cross and there's there's no better time for us to be able to do that than uh, during Lent and so uh, we'll continue today with this book on the incarnation um, and we'll see where we can go from there so St. Athanasius continues and he writes here he says he takes to himself a body capable of death in order that it, participating in the word who is above all, might suffice for death on behalf of all, and through the word dwelling in it, might remain incorruptible, and henceforth incorruption might cease from all by the grace of the resurrection. If you recall, uh, I had mentioned this uh, a few lectures ago, um, that it's very common for the church fathers to write in run-on sentences, especially when they want to make sure that there's a unified thought that's gonna be delivered um, all sort of in one shot. Um, and so you can see there's many parts of this and, and hopefully we'll be able to, to, to break it apart here just a little. St. Athanasius is outlining for us the reason for the incarnation. It's for no other principal reason than for the crucifixion. It's not solely that he takes a body or that he takes something from this world so that he can become physical or whatever concept we might have. He takes a body that's capable of dying. What does it mean that death is sufficient for all? Is it solely in terms of a payment, something that's rendered in a transactional sense? No. Even though that is verbiage that is used uh, to describe this kind of stuff by the fathers. Uh, it's not the main focus. As a side note, uh, there's a whole series of different metaphors uh, that are used. And this system of thinking in terms of discrete reasons and posing them against one another has been rather fashionable in the last couple of hundred years. Uh, and it's allowed for a lot of, of uh, big arguments of people that are kind of arguing uh, back and forth as to which model of salvation is the correct one. Um, and that's what they call them. They call them models of salvation. Uh, the church fathers didn't think in these terms. They didn't have a model of salvation um, when they used a particular metaphor and then, and then signified that as, you know, we're, we're using this model or the title of that is this model. They thought about salvation itself. Um, St. Athanasius employs a variety of images to expound the death of Christ. So there's the sacrificial image um, where he offers his body to the father um, and to death. There's the satisfaction and substitution where his death suffices for all, which is what it is that he's speaking about here. There's the fulfillment of the debt uh, and the conquering of the tyranny of death. But one model can't be discarded or elevated as the model without using the others. And each model of the ones that I've mentioned right now has its weaknesses because they're metaphors that help us to understand something that's much grander than the metaphors themselves. There is one reality that unifies them all. If you wanna say sort of an, an arch theme, an arch model, um, and perhaps we'll get to that at some point. 
but it's important for us to keep in mind, especially when we start talking about this, this kind of stuff, whether satisfaction or substitution or payment of debt or um, Christ the victor, uh, any of these things, all of them have to be taken um, in unison with one another. And they can't be held uh, where one is being held as the higher standard to the exclusion of the others. Um, and we also have to understand that the, the logical development of some of these models where our minds would run to by saying, if we say this, does that mean that uh, doesn't always carry through? Um, because the models themselves, if you want to turn the models, are not perfect. They're supposed to be images that help us to meditate and understand this um, at a deeper level. When we think of Christ's death on behalf of all, we shouldn't think of it as though his death is separate from our own. Uh, he dies so that I don't have to die is not a complete thought. Uh, he dies a death, having taken on a body capable of death, in order that we may die in him, so that as he rises from the dead, we may also rise with him. He's not simply another human being. He's the epitome of humanity. He's the perfect man. And we, being the body of Christ, are in him. This is fundamental for us to understand. Otherwise, we think of him as other, as disconnected, as someone who renders an action that's somehow apart from me, something in the past, something that's done indiscriminately and impersonally for everyone. So let's follow St. Athanasius's logic here in terms of what it is that he said in this paragraph. Christ takes on a body that's capable of death, and because it is one with his divinity, its effects extend to everyone. Because the divinity is not subject to corruption, and because the divinity doesn't part from his humanity, his humanity isn't subject to corruption. And so this benefit is now given to all through the resurrection. Not only his resurrection in the past, as though that's again a discrete incident that occurred 2,000 years ago, but also my resurrection in him, both in the past because of all of, human, all of humanity, all of human nature is in him, but also in my future, my future, when I'll experience the bodily resurrection. And so, again, we harp on this. What is the primary reason for the incarnation? And the primary reason for the incarnation is the crucifixion. And it's important for us to be able to see that St. Athanasius is going to reiterate this point over and over again, because it is the fundamental point for us to be able to understand our faith, why it is that we're Christians, why we call ourselves Christians. It's all centered on the cross. Um, and so let's, let's see what it is that St. Athanasius says here. For by the sacrifice of his own body, he both put an end to the law that lay against us and renewed for us the origin of life by giving hope of the resurrection. For since it was from humans that death prevailed against humans, so for this reason conversely, by the incarnation of God has come about the destruction of death and the resurrection of life. As the man who bore Christ says, since by man came death, so by man came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive, and so forth. For now no longer as condemned do we die, but as those who will rise again, we await the general resurrection of all, which God who has wrought and bestowed it 
will reveal in his own time. This, therefore, is the primary cause of the incarnation of the Savior. Again, there's a lot of text here. But again, let's see whether or not we can, we can pull this apart. Now, it's fully stated that the, the reason for the incarnation is the crucifixion. This is key because, like we said before, people like to think about these incidents as discrete events. The incarnation has a reason. His baptism, his preaching have a reason. The miracles have a reason. Um, and that these are somehow disconnected from one another. When we think about the incarnation, we must think of the crucifixion. Uh, it's not us celebrating on the Feast of Nativity simply because God came and took flesh or because the wise men came and offered him gifts or because the angels proclaimed good news to the world. We celebrate because he has come to die and to die for us, a solution that we didn't even think possible. And so when we start thinking about how is it that this death has some effect on us? How is it that it's not disconnected? How is it that it's not just an incident that's happened 2,000 years ago and an impersonal incident at that because it was done and I presumably did not exist then, right? Clearly, I, I was not born. Uh, and so how can that have an effect on me now who is born um, and have to struggle in this way? Uh, and so we, we turn to the gospel um, and to the epistles so that we can see uh, what, what this might mean. So we have this um, idea of abiding and dwelling in one another. Uh, and St. John the Evangelist is, is particularly uh, good at highlighting this point here. Uh, and so we see first in the Gospel of John, Christ says, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And then in the first epistle of St. John, he says, he who does not love God does not know God, for God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the expiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No man has ever seen God. Now pay attention to this part here. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his own spirit. And then St. Paul finally um, says, you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. So let's, let's bring this all together. What does it mean for him to abide in us? Other translations render it as dwell, so that uh, it can say, uh, dwell in me and I in you. Uh, but more accurately, it's to remain. And this is a, a, a word that's a big word that's, that uh, St. Athanasius really likes to, to, to meditate on, uh, remaining. Um, if we continuously are united to him, we bear fruit. If we remain in him, we bear fruit. If we love one, one another, he dwells in us. We receive life by being united to life, by being united to one another. And if we're united to him, 
We are united to one another because all of humanity is in him. This is why you can't love God and hate your brother because your brother is in Christ and Christ is in your brother. It's not only the abstract idea that if we love God, then by extension, we should love everyone else because then we'd be holy saints and saints are great with everyone around them. No, it's that a true recognition of loving God means that you love Christ in his body, the word made flesh, and we are all his body. So that if you love Christ, you don't only love a part of him, but you love all of him and we are all in him. And so by extension, we love one another. If, if I love Christ, if I truly love Christ, I'm going to love his body. And this body is that which he takes. That body is what he takes. And that is what we take, what we partake of in Holy Communion. The body that he takes is the church. We are the body of Christ, not metaphorically, in reality. And that's a big concept for us to be able to try to wrap our heads around. All of humanity is in Christ. All of humanity is the body of Christ. Um, and so, and, and we as the church are the testament of this, right? The church is the body of Christ. So, and this is true in reality. So that if we love Christ, we must by extension love everyone. Christ's body is us. If you want to see the body of Christ, many people say, oh, I, I wish that I could see Christ. I wish that he would be in front of me. If you want to see Christ in the flesh, look to your brother. It's very profound. And it allows us to see how things are all connected in him. The incarnation is connected to the crucifixion, is connected to communion, is connected to the liturgy, is connected to the very person of Jesus Christ. We might study them individually, but they're all together. So that when we study dogma, or spirituality, or liturgics, or the lives of the saints, they all point to him because he is in all of these things. And if we're united to him willingly, then we can be said to truly know him. And so this is why all of these things come together and why you could see that this icon, which is the, the tree of life, right? This is Christ. And you can see the apostles that are extensions. These are the branches. And by extension, us as well. This is the whole church, right? The, the tree of life is Christ's body. Um, and this is something that we end up seeing in the book of Revelation as well. Uh, but the, it's, so, it's so fundamental for us to be able to see that because he dwells in us, because we abide in him, we're all united to one another and we're united to him so that when he does something 2,000 years ago, it is a personal thing that's being done for me. And that's because it's not just that the, the effects of it are outside of time, which is true. It's that all of humanity is summed up in Christ because he is the only perfect human. If you want to see what a true human being is supposed to be. What does it mean to be a human being in the fullest sense? It is Christ, right? Because he's perfectly man. When we say that he's perfect man, that doesn't just mean that he has all of the components that make a human being, right? 
It is that he has taken all of those components and he's shown us what it is for that to be perfected. And all of humanity is summed up in him. All of humanity is contained in him. Just as we could say that in the first Adam, all of humanity was there and contained in him. And this is a point that St. Paul makes. Uh, and we'll get to that, I think, uh, in, a, in a slide or two. So also, all of this is summed up in Christ because Christ is the perfect human being, the one upon which all of us were made in the image of. And so when he does something, it by extension extends to all of us. So in, in again, focusing on the cross, this is what it is that St. Athanasius says. And he's speaking here specifically about the gospel account of the crucifixion. Uh, nor did he cause creation itself to be silent. But what is most amazing, even at his death, or rather at the victory over death, I mean the cross, and, and see that he's, he, he juxtaposes these two things because they're both realities. It's the death of Christ, but it is also the victory over death by Christ. There's, there's always these, these two things that will go together when we contemplate spiritual truths, what it is that we see and what it is that is, is a, a deeper, more profound truth that's underneath that as well. So that we could say, for example, that we see uh, bread and wine, uh, but, the, but the reality that's underneath that, that's juxtaposed with that, is uh, that this is the body and blood of Christ. And you'll see this, and we made mention of this in a couple of lectures, uh, that uh, these these uh, things that when we look at, at spiritual truths, at, at, at spiritual things, um, that we will see sort of what, what is there on the superficial aspect and then the deeper, more profound aspect, and both hold to be true, right? So, nor did he cause creation itself to be silent, but what is most amazing, even at his death, or rather at the victory over death, I mean the cross, the whole of creation was confessing that he who was known and suffered in the body was not simply man, but the Son of God and Savior of all. For the sun turned back, and the earth shook, and the mountains were rent, and all were terrified. And these things showed that the Christ who was on the cross was God, and that the whole of creation was his handmaid, and was witnessing in fear to the coming of her master. So in this way, God the Word revealed himself to men through his works." It is our next task to describe the end of his life and activity in the body and to say what kind was the death of the body, especially because this is the chief point of our faith and absolutely everyone talks about it in order that you may know that it is from this especially, not less so, that Christ is known to be God and the Son of God. How do we know that Christ is, is God? How do we know that he's the Son of God? It's through the cross. This image, what it is that's happening here on the cross, is the testimony for him being God. Christ is known to be God and the Son of God through the cross. All of the universe testified to this. These things didn't happen because the universe was so upset that Christ was crucified, as though it laments his death, uh, even though that kind of language can be used sometimes, right? Um, but these things happen to proclaim like a trumpet the king on his throne. We know that he's the king 
because he sits on his throne. God's throne is the cross. And we've said this many times before, but we'll reiterate it here again today. This is the reason why the church on the 12th hour of Good Friday, as the psalm that's presented, sings pick ethronos, right? Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Because we recognize that the cross is his throne, but that we also recognize that the one who's on his throne is God. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. We know that he's the king because he sits on his throne. The testimony of his love for us is the cross. And because God is love, it's the testimony of who he is. Let me say that again. The testimony of his love for us is on the cross. And because we know that God is love, it's the testimony of who he is. Who is God? He is the one who is on the cross. This is the main point for this work by St. Athanasius. It is why the center of all of history is the cross. Anything we know about God, about who he is, about him being love, is not simply given another demonstration on the cross. It's not like we say he loved us because he raised this person from the dead, he cured this uh, disease from this uh, person, he exercised these demons out of these people, and also, by the way, he also uh, was crucified, as though they don't have their main foundational point in the cross. When do we finally know him to be truly God, to be the Son of God? It's on the cross. This is, this is the, the, the greatest testimony of this. So where else do we have a testimony before the cross that he is the son of God? Who says that? And under what context then does this um, conversation occur? We see this in the gospel of Matthew. And this is critical for us. Let's read through it. I think everybody knows uh, this conversation, at least the first part of this conversation very well. And then we kind of disconnect the second part of this conversation from the first part as though it's a, a separate incident, but it's all interrelated. Uh, again, this is from Matthew 16. It says, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do men say that the son of man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not on the side of God, but of men. Now, all of this functions together in a very, very beautiful way. How does Peter know that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God? 
No one else recognized this. Christ says that it, it's because it was revealed to Peter by God the Father. Peter knows this by divine revelation, not because he simply saw Christ doing miracles or teaching. Everyone saw that, but they didn't recognize who Christ was. And we see that, and that is testified to here, right? So everyone saw these kinds of big miracles that were being done. Um, so the, the feeding of the, the 5,000 was, was already done here. All kinds of things, the, the miracle at the baptism, uh, Peter's own experience along with the rest of the disciples of uh, the great catch of, of the fish, uh, demons being exercised, all of these things had already occurred. And so, they, so he asked them, who, who do men think that I am? And what's being reported here is that uh, no, one th no one thinks that he is the son of God based on these things, right? All of these miracles, the teachings that he's given, uh, the preaching on the Sermon on the Mount, which uh, we've seen from uh, Matthew 5 to 7, all of these things have already occurred, but no one recognizes him as the son of the living God. And so it's not through flesh that we get to see that he is the son of the living God. Uh, because that's not how you would be able to recognize him. If you saw him walking on the street, you wouldn't say, oh, there's a son, right? The son of God. You wouldn't know that, right? How do you know it? It is by revelation. And that's what Christ says. You know this because it's been revealed to you by the Father. And the same thing will end up applying for the way that we view the crucifixion. When we see him on the cross, if you were to see him on the cross, if you somehow could travel back in time and see this, this vision of Christ on the cross, you wouldn't naturally say, oh, this is the son of God, right? That's not the, your, your natural inclination uh, as the takeaway. And, and that's very clear because there are many, many people that were there at the crucifixion, um, but all of these people didn't recognize that uh, he is uh, the son of God. Some people did. Right? But that also is something that is recorded based on Revelation. The rest of the people don't see this. It's not a natural thing to be able to see it. So it's not through flesh that, you be able, that you're able to ascertain this. It is through Revelation. It's through being able to see what is there and is a truth that he's there on the cross suffering and dying, but that this is also, also a victory. And that victory doesn't uh, do away with the first part. The victory doesn't do away with the suffering, with the death. Uh, those things are real. Those things are, are true. But it is also a victory. It is also something else. And that also is what is given to us by divine revelation. Um, and so everyone saw what it is that Christ had done. But, but no one... Um, no one prior to the crucifixion was able to see this except by revelation in very specific circumstances and this particular proclamation that's made by, by Peter. And so you see what's, what comes right after this. So I took out a few verses here because they're not relevant to our discussion right now, even though they're obviously very important for us to be able to discuss. But it, it, almost immediately after it says, from that time, from that time, after and Peter has made this proclamation that, that Christ is the son of the living God. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. The proclamation of his very identity is tied to the cross. 
right? St. Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then Christ starts talking about his crucifixion, right? Because his identity is tied to the cross. Because it is the, the confirmation of him being God. How do we know that he's God? Because he died on the cross. But you'd say many people died on the cross, and that's true. But his, and, and his death uh, was, was very similar to the others, right? From, from the sort of superficial standpoint. Uh, not because of the physicality of it. Uh, the, you know, there's wood for everybody. Uh, there's nails, uh, or they're being hung by rope. Uh, there's suffering, etc. cetera. Uh, but it's unlike them because of the, the, the spiritual profound depth, the truth that underlies that. You see him on the cross. The world testifies to the grandness of this. And then the proof of the power of the cross, the fact that he remains in incorruption is that he rises from the dead. Who Christ is, is always tied to the cross. And the cross is always tied to showing that he is the son of God. If you go and you read in the New Testament, you'll see that this is everywhere if you pay attention, not only in the Gospels, but the epistles are filled with it. A proclamation of Christ and his love, it's the cross, right? And so you can see this time and again. If, if you go and you try to search out in the epistles, anytime that, that God is said to be love, um, God is said to be love, and this is something that, that uh, actually I'll go back here just so that we, we can see it very quickly. Just as an example, in 1 John 4, it says God is love. Uh, and then it says, it continues here, that uh, uh, in, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. How do we live through him? We live through him, through his death and his resurrection. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the expiation for our sins. When is he an expiation for our sins? On the cross. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another, right? So everything is tied to this. Everything is always going to be tied to the cross. The proof of his love for us is the cross. The, the, the point of his being sent is for the cross. So now we can speak about God and allude to characteristics that we know about the Father because we see the Son who is his image. And the Son is revealed to us on the cross. If you have any descriptor of God, it must be understood from the viewpoint of the cross. God's mercy, God's justice, God's love, God's wrath, God's omnipotence, his omniscience, his omnipresence, everything is centered here on the cross. Anything that we have to say about God the Father, we say it because we see Christ, the Son of God, who is the image of God, who is how we understand by looking on him, by understanding Christ, we can understand the Father. By seeing him, we see the Father, right? And this is why it is when, when they say, when the disciples say, show us the Father. And he says, have I been with you so long that you haven't seen him? Why? Because he is the image. If we see Christ, if we know who he is, and we know that he is the image of the Father, then we know something about the Father because he's the image, right? Christ is the image of the Father. And so we, it, it is as though we are looking upon um, the very uh, representation of the Father in front of us. And the perfection of this is on the cross. So that when we come to understand that God is love, 
Why is it that we can say God is love? And notice who it is that says that God is love, right? The person who writes God is love, St. John the Evangelist, right? First John 4, 8. Why is he the one that can, that can stand on this and why he harps on God is love and love one another? God is love, God is love, God is love. It's because he is the one that was at the foot of the cross amongst all of the disciples. He sees Christ on the cross and he doesn't only see the physical part of it, which is a true reality. He doesn't only see suffering and death and he doesn't do away with that, right? You cannot put that to the side. In, ad in addition to being able to see that, he also recognizes what is the fundamental truth for all of existence. God is love. How do I know? I saw it. I saw it when I saw him on the cross. God is love. And so he was sent for this reason, to become the expiation of our sins. And that is why we also must love one another. Because we are all, like I said before, we are all one body in Christ. And we must love one another because the body of Christ is what we love. We love Christ. We love Christ not because we just love him for the sake of loving him, but because he first loved us. How did he love us first? By doing this, right? This is the proof of this. This is the proof of his love. You can say many other things about all kinds of things that, that would have happened over history that would have been proofs of his love so that when he created us, he created us out of love. When he saved the Israelites from Egypt, he did so out of love. He did all of these things out of love, right? And, and, and that holds to be true, but it's all because we can see it through this lens that God is love because of what it is that he did on the cross. And because that is him on his throne, we understand that God as a king on his throne, the perfect depiction of this is the cross. To all of mankind, it looks like a sign of weakness. And from a physical as aspect, it is weakness. But from, from our aspect, from the faith aspect, from understanding what it is that is happening there, what, is, what it is that's being affected there, this is the perfect demonstration of who God is. Who is God? God is Christ on the cross. And we understand that because Christ is the image of the Father, then we now know something about God the Father on his throne. What is the image of God the Father on his throne? It's not this high abstract thing of, of uh, gold and glory and honor, the way that we would think about it from an earthly standpoint, in terms of him being in this huge palace and a king. And what is this? What is the image of uh, God the Father on his throne, the image of God the Father on his throne is the image of Christ, the Son of God, the image of God on his throne, shown to us on the cross. It's, it's, it's incredibly profound, right? Meditate on this during Lent. Don't let this time um, simply be consumed by what it is that we want to consume, right? Talks about food, and the headaches that we have because we're not drinking our coffee or tea in the morning. Think of the cross. Think of the cross because this, this is the center of our very being. And find him there. And join him there. We'll continue next time with probably one final discussion of this aspect of Christology. 
by going through on the incarnation. And of course, there's a lot of the book that we're not covering here, um, but there's so much good and, and profound um, truth that's, com uh, that's, that's contained in there um, that it's, it's very worthy to be read, not only when we usually read it, which is uh, during Advent, uh, before the Feast of the Nativity. But this is, what a beautiful time to be able to read about it right now during Lent so that we can, we can take this journey and keep in mind, why is it that he came? It's because of the cross. It's because of us. It's because of love. It's because of that fundamental truth that he wishes to, to show us exactly who it is that he is. It's on the cross. Uh, and so we'll do this. Uh, probably one one last time, and then we'll switch back to our series on desert spirituality and, and an aspect of that. Uh, God bless and keep us all in your prayers. Um, and God willing, uh, hopefully very soon we will all be uh, in person with one another, so that we can we can have these kinds of talks uh, in the church itself.